This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. It was all about eating When I became a teen It was all about beefing Now I'm ready for the world Trying to sink my teeth in Stacking it Hey there, welcome to episode 146 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with a fellow Christy, Christy Fascio, a certified body trust provider and health at every size personal trainer. We talked about the restrict binge cycle and binge eating disorder, how to make fitness work for people in larger bodies, why diet culture is the life thief, as I'm always saying, and how it steals our power, our freedom, and our joy, and so much more. We talked about a lot of great stuff, and it's a really good one, so I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. And I'm actually going to give a trigger warning for this question because it's about a specific diet and slightly more obscure sort of diet that's been popping up lately. I usually don't delve too much into these specific diets because I don't want to give anyone ideas or introduce them to a diet that they wouldn't otherwise have heard of, even though my intention is always, of course, to debunk it or show why you shouldn't go on this diet. But those things can still be triggering for people who struggle with wanting to go on different diets and stuff. So I'm giving a trigger warning for this question, but I've gotten multiple questions about this particular diet, so I figured it's time to call it out by name. So if you're likely to be triggered by hearing about a diet that you may never have known about before, go ahead and skip this question, and you can skip ahead several minutes. Actually, give me a sec, and I'll tell you roughly the timestamp to go to. So I'll be done answering the question right around 17 minutes and 30 seconds. So go ahead and skip ahead to that point if you're likely to be triggered by talk of a specific diet. Okay, so now on to the question. It's from a listener named Lacey who writes, Hi, Christy. First of all, thanks so much for doing this podcast. I'm currently studying to become a psychologist and hope to work with the eating disorder population, and I'm always intrigued by the wonderful guests on the show as well as your insightful questions. My question is, what's the deal with intermittent fasting? It seems like article after article pops up proclaiming the numerous health benefits of this fad. However, from my knowledge of nutrition, it doesn't seem like it would be possible to get adequate micro or macronutrients with intermittent fasting. Additionally, it seems very much to me like disordered eating behaviors, denying your body food because an article said it was quote-unquote healthy. Finally, although I know it's not scientific, my intuition tells me that it's wrong. Now, this is enough to keep me far away from intermittent fasting, but what can I tell people who think this fad is a quote-unquote healthy lifestyle choice? So thanks, Lacey, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't meant as a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, this is a great question. And I just want to start off by saying bravo for knowing that intermittent fasting is not an intuitive choice. It seems like your intuition is really spot on here and is is working for you because so many people get caught up in the rhetoric around these types of quote unquote cleanses and lifestyle changes. And the marketing of these tactics really convinces people that it's a method that will improve their health. There's so many of these things like this now in this day and age. So good on you for seeing past that bullshit because it's hard sometimes when the diet culture language is so sneaky and it's always shape-shifting and diets are holding themselves out now as lifestyle changes and health-promoting practices. 
But if you've been listening to the podcast for some time now, you know that deprivation and restriction are definitely the quickest paths to binging behaviors and to feeling out of control around food, feeling like you're eating emotionally or triggering off a restrictive tendency or binge purge tendency such as anorexia or bulimia. So not good, right? All kinds of disorder lies in wait for people when they embark on diets and this diet is no different. And fasting has this added element of really restricting people a couple of days a week or wh- however much you're supposed to fast in intermittent fasting. And it varies from person to person, proponent to proponent, I should say, of intermittent fasting, how often you're supposed to do it. But it really is highly restrictive. And your body is meant to nourish itself and to get its needs met consistently throughout the day. And yes, your body can handle situations where you might be starving, right? Like we wouldn't be here if our ancestors weren't able to survive famine. I'm always saying this, but the way that we're able to survive famine and the way that our brains start to operate when the famine meter sort of is kicked off, which restriction really triggers it, is to seek out food at all costs. So that means being driven to binge. That also means specifically seeking out food that provide energy very quickly, namely sugar and carbohydrates, right? Because foods made up of those simple carbs break down really fast in your bloodstream into glucose and provide immediate energy. And that's what your body's going to want if it's really deprived and it's in a famine. And so intermittent fasting, just like any form of dieting and restrictive eating, can trigger off this starvation response in your body, which can lead people to start binging, can lead people to start having this addictive feeling around sugar and carbohydrates, which often leads people to mistakenly label themselves as being addicted to these foods rather than just being a really natural response to restriction. And intermittent fasting, like any form of fasting or restrictive eating or dieting, can also trigger off really serious disordered eating behaviors. Not that, I mean, every disordered eating behavior is serious, but purging is life-threatening, is is very dangerous. Anorexia, severe restriction is also very life-threatening and sort of in an immediate way. So all of these things are really terrible. And by the way, anorexia can happen in any size body, as we've spoken about on the podcast many times. So it's not about fitting a specific size profile. It's about the behaviors. So any way you slice it, whether people end up in the binge restrict cycle or restrict binge cycle, rather, that would be kicked off by something like intermittent fasting or going towards what they label emotional eating or food addiction, feeling addicted to particular foods or engaging in things like bulimia or anorexia, no matter what, no matter what side of the spectrum people go to, no matter what body size people are in when they're engaging in these behaviors, they're really dangerous. And the risk is really great with any form of dieting, but especially a super restrictive form of dieting like intermittent fasting. There's also several recent studies that have been done showing that people who engage in intermittent fasting have no significant difference in weight loss from people who engage in continuous restriction, the type that characterizes other diets. And so it's really worth noting that because people think that a new diet comes on the scene and it's going to be the next big thing and it's getting all this press and this diet will be different. But actually, when done head-to-head studies with good scientific evidence, really all diets are basically the same. 
And one of the things they all share is that they're all pretty short term, like studies in general of diets are all pretty short term. The ones that were done on intermittent fasting were between a few months and a year at most, but mostly on the few months side of things. And we know that pretty much all diets or weight loss plans will show some weight loss for that period of time. But it's around three to five years that people end up gaining back all the weight they lost and usually more. Up to two thirds of people who go on a diet will regain more weight than they originally lost. And the same is often true of other supposed health benefits of dieting, too. So often there will be a short-term improvement seen in certain biomarkers in the early stages of any kind of diet, but then things tend to revert to how they were before or look even worse as the study period progresses or after follow-up of the study. And it's worth noting that most of the claims made about the supposed health benefits of intermittent fasting are not even based on good science. They're based on studies done in animals, which is never a reason to recommend something to humans because animal studies, the results are not borne out when the same study is repeated with humans. Animal studies are only meant as a guide for future research when it comes to nutritional research on humans. It's like the first stop on the journey to getting a really good scientific base for something. So the first stop is really developing a hypothesis. Second stop is doing an animal study or series of animal studies. And then with enough evidence from animal studies, then people can progress to, okay, can we do this in humans? Can we get a small pilot study together showing for a small number of people just to test that this is even something we should be considering pursuing in humans? And then if a pilot study or two are done and it's like, okay, the results are maybe promising or at least not totally inconclusive, then we can move on to larger, more robust and more expensive studies, the gold standard of which is a randomized controlled trial. And the randomized controlled trial is when two groups of people are randomized into either the treatment group or the control group. And the treatment group is given whatever the experimental treatment is that you're testing. And the control group is given nothing or a placebo or whatever the sort of control diet is. And then the results are examined between the two groups of people and people are randomized. So they don't know which one they got. And they're double blinded as well, meaning that the researchers don't know who's in which group and the participants also don't know who's in which group so that the results can't be influenced by bias from the participants or from the researchers or placebo effect or whatever. So this is a very expensive and very difficult kind of study to do. And there's very few of them actually done in nutrition research, even though it is the gold standard. And usually when randomized controlled trials are done in nutrition research, a few of them are done and you're supposed to do several studies to try to replicate the results, have a different group of researchers replicate the results or see if they can replicate the results of the first group of researchers. And then if so, other groups try to replicate it too. And if everybody's replicating the same results, then it's like, okay, I think we've got something here. But what usually happens in nutrition research is one person gets one set of results, one person gets another set, one person, you know, they're all over the map. And then it's hard to really say with any certainty what's going on here. And then, of course, the follow-up time is never long enough to really tell what's going to happen long-term because the most time that really any study follows people is usually like two years or, you know, it'll be like 
at most one year of the intervention and then following up with people a year later, there's very few that follow people for more than two years total. And if in three to five years, the supposed benefits of the intervention all revert to baseline or people are worse off than they were before, researchers won't end up knowing that because they haven't followed people long enough to get that information. So that all is to say that the supposed science behind intermittent fasting is very weak. Most of the health claims are based on research done in animals, not in humans. And the very few pieces of research that there are, there's only maybe one or two randomized controlled trials. And they have shown that basically the results are the same for people who've done just a regular diet. And generally speaking, there's really zero research out there that illustrates long-term effectiveness of any kind of diet, like I said, or any kind of restrictive eating plan or quote-unquote lifestyle change, which really just means diet, right? Except in very specific populations, like a gluten-free diet for the tiny percentage of the population that has celiac disease has been shown to be effective. Or a peanut-free diet for people with peanut allergies, again, a very tiny percentage of the population, but that has been shown to be effective. So in, in specific populations, There are dietary interventions that have been shown to be effective, but there's no research out there showing effectiveness in a general population of these kinds of specific diets. And that is true of intermittent fasting, too. We don't have enough evidence to show that in a general population of human beings, not just rats, that intermittent fasting might have any sort of benefit. And the risks really outweigh the potential benefits in terms of the potential and the capacity to trigger disordered eating. There's also no research out there showing long-term effectiveness of any diet for weight loss, except in a vanishingly small percentage of people that have really disordered behaviors, like we've talked about on the podcast before. And in fact, the only eating style that has shown any kind of long-term positive outcomes for a general population is the health at every size approach that promotes intuitive eating, that doesn't promote restricting food or controlling your food intake or cutting certain foods out of your diet. As you mentioned, there's nothing intuitive about intermittent fasting, right? So it doesn't fall into this, it can't fall into this health at every size approach that promotes intuitive eating. Anyone who's experienced food insecurity can tell you that fasting is not helpful for any sort of intuitive relationship with food. And in fact, even thinking about going on a diet that promotes fasting consistently is a pretty glaring representation of class privilege when you think about it, because some folks can't even eat consistently because they can't afford to. And now we have people trying to replicate that experience in an effort to lose weight. That's pretty screwed up if you ask me. And also doesn't actually seem that effective when you think about it. So please note that I'm not referring here to fasting that people do for religious purposes, like for Ramadan or Yom Kippur or something like that, or for medical purposes, like before surgery. I'm just talking about intermittent fasting, this particular kind of fad diet that's done for the sole purpose of weight loss or quote unquote, cleansing the body or health benefits. I will say, though, that even fasting for religious reasons or before a medical procedure can be really triggering to people with disordered eating tendencies. So even those things should be treated with extreme caution. I know at least some religious leaders, and I would really hope all of them, say that people with eating disorders are exempt from having to engage in any kind of ritual fasting. And no matter what, you always have bodily autonomy and you never have to do anything in the name of religion that's going to harm you. And the same goes for medicine, really. You can talk to your doctor about alternatives to fasting for a medical procedure. If you feel like it's going to trigger you into some really disordered behaviors, you can say no. You can ask for an alternative, including, say, scheduling the appointment for early in the morning so that you don't actually 
actually have to spend any time awake without being able to eat normally. Like you can just go about your day and then go to sleep and have your appointment in the morning before breakfast and you're done. So that's kind of an aside, but I think important to know for anyone who's having to fast for any of those purposes as well. But to wrap it all up, though, I would say that Lacey, who asked the question, you're totally right that intermittent fasting is prescribing really disordered behaviors to people. And it's certainly not intuitive. It's very disordered to intentionally restrict and deprive yourself of food on any kind of diet. And it's certainly not an intuitive or self-caring way of eating. But remember, as a mental health provider, your job is to present the facts and do the best you can to make the case for people to engage in safe and self-caring behaviors. But they're ultimately in charge of making their own decisions, and you can't convince them or persuade them to do anything that they're not ready to do. And some of our clients in this field are just not ready to give up dieting. And sometimes people will have to circle around dieting for a long time, even though we as providers are like, hey, you know, intuitive eating's right over there and it's great. Why don't you come on over and check it out? And people are like, no, no, no. I'm just going to go over here and do this keto thing or whatever, right? People cycle around until they're really ready to change a lot of the time. And so I think we do the best we can to convince people, but ultimately it's up to them to make the decision. So just know what's right for you. And it sounds like you really do. You're not going to try this anytime soon yourself, which is awesome. And don't co-sign it in any of your patients, but kind of know that people have bodily autonomy and they're going to do things sometimes that will ultimately harm their health. And that is unfortunately the reality of being a provider in this sort of field is that we really try to help people make peace with food in their bodies. And sometimes they're just going to do things because they feel so pressured from diet culture, because they're not ready to give up the disordered behaviors for whatever reason. Sometimes they are going to do things that harm them. And hopefully we can be there to facilitate them learning from that. So thanks so much for that great question. I hope it helps. And if you want to ask a question of your own for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions and submit your question there. Then if you want a whole library of answers from me to help you master intuitive eating, plus the chance to ask me any question you want and have it answered in a timely manner, because these questions are from months ago that I'm answering on the podcast, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, where I answer everybody's questions every month. So you'll not only get an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast from me with answers to all your questions, but you also get to be a part of an amazing private online community to connect with fellow participants. And there are hundreds of them in there now who are supporting each other on this intuitive eating journey. And it's a really lovely place to go and share and be supported. Plus, I'm there answering questions and providing guidance. And you also get 13 modules of content with the course. So you're really supported in lots of different ways through multimedia lectures and journal exercises and community community support, and individual attention. You get really a 360 degrees of support in this course. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind back in the dust of 2017, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Christy Fascio. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. My relationship with food growing up, you know, when I think back on it, I think it was pretty simple. I had a brother and a sister, a little brother and a little sister, and both of my parents were were teachers. So nights were really routine. They picked us up at the sitters at five and we went home and we had dinner. And, and I remember just really, really simple, easy to prepare dinners, but we were all around the table and 
I loved that. And I just remember, I remember my brother falling asleep in his food a lot after he started school. And that's when we got to talk about our day. And I miss that because I, I know our lives are really busy right now. And, but at the time we didn't have dance lessons or piano lessons or anything else that kind of take up that evening time. So we just got to come home and be together as a family. And as I got older and all those things did start to creep in, that started to change. And, and I think that's when kind of relationship with food started to change. But when I was little, I just, I love that we just had really simple, really good food that my mom made. And we just got to sit around at the dinner table and laugh at my brother with his head and his mashed potatoes. <laughs> oh my God, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And it sounds like there wasn't any sort of demonization of food or moralization or anything like that. It was just a pleasure. Not when I was little. It, I'm not going to lie. It came in when I was older. You know, I think as I got older and puberty started and my body started to change, that's when the demonization started to come in. Because I think, unfortunately, as parents, we carry the stuff from our parents and we carry our own stuff and and it gets passed on. And as someone with a daughter, it's it's scary to watch your kid grow up before your eyes and to see and to really see that that body start to change. And for good or for bad, I think that protective instinct kicks in. And if it's not checked, then then that's when the food demonization can start in. And both my parents were, were constantly on diets. And I, I did get to a point where I could see that. And I do remember the point when certain food, when I was told to avoid certain foods and that my brother and sister got to eat them, but I didn't. And when that change started to happen. That must have been really painful to have them still be allowed to eat those foods and you have to not have them. It was. I I remember being really confused because it was never really all that explicit. So it was kind of that gray, hazy area of, well, something must be wrong with me because my little sister gets to go to the store and buy a whole bunch of stuff and she gets to eat it and I'm being told not to and I'm being told to exercise and I'm being told to just do other, there were just other things that I was told to do. And so it just felt very odd. And I just remember thinking it was very unfair. Yeah. And did they explicitly say it's because of your body size or was it just sort of understood or? I think it was kind of just understood. I remember being taken to the doctor like I had my knees were hurting me. This is probably junior high-ish. And my doctor telling me how much I weighed and then saying, for your knees, it's best that you should never weigh more than this at 12. Oh, right. As though that's possible. Right. As <laughs> if I'm like, oh, Great. Yeah, I'll just stay this size my entire I'm I can totally do that. Right. But, you know, but my dad was in the room and my dad was an athlete and he heard that. And so after that, that's when he would try to get me to work out with him or he would try to get me to run with him and and that's really when I was really told not to eat certain things. And so it really it did start to dawn on me that this was this was my problem and this was my body's problem. And that's, you know, again, junior high. I mean, oh my word, when are we not under a microscope if it's not junior high? Seriously. <laughs> oh, it's such a bad time. It really is. And that's when my body was really changing and my body was bigger. And I can look back now and go, oh my word, what were you even thinking? But at the time when you're living through that and when it's so visceral and it's just, it's, it's such a big deal. And 
people are pairing off and they're going to dances and they're kind of beginning all their little young love relationships. And it was, oh, junior high was horrible. Mm, I can feel you on that. That is, it was an awful time for me too. Especially when you're being told, I think by a doctor and family members and stuff that your body size is a problem. It just adds to that already huge angst that teenagers feel, you know, around that time. Yep. And I, I mean, another aspect of food in our family is food was love in our family. Food was, we'd go to family parties and, and I mean, the food was just everywhere and it was homemade and it was beautiful. And we have something and we have a salad in our family that has cookies and snicker bars. In it. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it was amazing. And, and, you know, and every, everybody in our family kind of has that one special dish that they would bring. And so, so it was really this dichotomy between it being so obvious that food was used to love and to comfort and to hold people when at the same time being told, no, don't eat it. Right. What a message. What a mixed message. Yeah. It really started to build up a lot of shame. Right. And how did that manifest in your relationship with food? Um, it manifested in a lot of hiding, a lot of hiding, because I could still look good on the outside and not eat it. But boy, was I good at figuring out where I could go to eat it. You know, and that's really when my eating disorder started to start. And I didn't know at the time that's what it was. I mean, who knew what BED was back then? No one. But that's when I look back on it, that's what it was. And that's when it was starting. So you kind of got into that restrict binge cycle of like oh, yeah. eating, quote unquote, perfectly or well in front of people and then having binges in secret. Yep. Because I was a good girl. That's what good girls did. Right. You wanted to follow the rules. You wanted to do what everybody said you should do. Yep. I knew the rules. I knew them very well. I was very good at them. Right. But your body needed what it needed, right? <laughs> needed fuel. Yeah, it did. It did. And, you know, it's really interesting. My first therapist, she finally, she was doing, you know, the whole the whole history of things. And, and she asked me when puberty started. And she asked me when I thought my ED started. And coincidentally, they were around the same time. And she looked at me and she said, do you think you were just hungry? And I, I mean, burst into tears. And I was like, I probably was. And I just didn't know how to say, I, I need this, you know, cause I was being given that message that it, that it was from the outside that it wasn't what I needed when inside I probably was just like, you know, my body's growing and changing and it might need more right now. So can we just be cool with that? And can we just be cool with maybe the fact that my body's rounder and developing earlier and. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's the question of, do you think you were just hungry is so visceral and I can, identify with that feeling of like bursting into tears when you think about that because also in my own history which because of thin privilege I was protected from ever trying to change my body sooner but when I was 20 it really hit me because I gained a little bit of weight in college and I decided to lose it and then suddenly all the stuff that I had ever heard about body size and dieting kind of came to the fore and it was like years of wrestling against my biological needs and mm -hmm. you know it being in that restrict binge cycle and when I finally like opened up to my therapist about it and you know started to try to get help I was like telling her what I did and stuff. And she asked me a very similar question or set, made a very similar observation of like, it sounds like maybe you needed a snack then, or it sounds like maybe you were hungry, yeah. you know, like you had gone hours without eating. And I was like, what? No, like that. How is that possible? This is emotional right. eating. Isn't this emotional eating? You know? And it was like, my mind was blown at this thought that maybe it was actual hunger. Right. Cause we're told to deny hunger. 
in any form. I mean, how dare we snack? And, oh, I mean, the messages we're given are just, they're atrocious. Totally. Yeah, hunger is so demonized in our society because of diet culture, right? Hunger is demonized by diet culture. Yeah, I remember watching commercials growing up, and they're still out there because every other commercial is a diet commercial. But I, I, I literally remember one of them was like, you won't be hungry and and then you won't want to eat. And I was like, wait, there are people that when they're not hungry, they don't eat? Because I just, you know, once you've kind of just overridden your hunger signals for so long... And you just don't know what that means. But I, I just, I remember legit being confused. Like, what do you mean when you're not hungry, you won't still eat? I really thought I was broken. You know, maybe my body just doesn't work the same way as other people. And it's interesting because that mechanism, feeling like your hunger signals are broken, is a direct result of diet culture and overriding those hunger signals. But then we're mm -hmm. made to feel like it's our own fault and like, oh, this is more evidence that I need the diet because I can't be trusted with food. Can't control myself but I can control my portions. Right. Which adds to, yeah, even more being out of touch with your hunger and fullness cues and just sort of more confusion about what your real needs are. And like, yeah, especially at a time like puberty, when your body is growing and changing and needs to be gaining more fat and reserves to be doing the biological functions it's going to do and to grow height-wise as well. Like, it's just so essential to have adequate nourishment and adequate energy stores. But because of all the stuff that we've been told about body size, it's like everybody panic. This kid is too hungry. Exactly. And we do it to ourselves too, right? Because it sounds like oh, that's absolutely. what you did to yourself was follow the rules, demonized hunger alongside everybody else, and then found yourself having these shameful secret eating patterns, which Again, if the shame had been removed, it might have just been like, oh, here's a snack. You know, here's I need to eat more. Right. Exactly. Or it's OK to ask. Ask me for what you need. Like, how powerful is that to say to someone, ask me for what you need so that I can give it to you? I mean, that's just that's just love right there. Mm -hmm. And so many people don't get that form of love. Right. To be allowed to ask for what they need. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and I think it's amazing and such a testament to how far you've come. It sounds like that you can now see that and mm -hmm. be able to feel that asking for what you need is okay, that you have that permission, right? Yep. Yeah. And my kids have it too. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Yep. How did that unfold for you then? How did you get from the binging to the place you are now? Oh my gosh, it took a long time. It took a really long time. I mean, I, I had to get through high school and college and grad school. I mean, as I grew up, it just got worse because I, as I had more independence and I had more kind of money to spend, it all went towards diets. And I mean, it took probably until five years ago. I mean, I really, I, you know, everyone talks about like hitting bottom, but I did. And I found myself injured and tired and at the end, at the end of my dieting rope. And I just remember sitting there thinking, you know, there really has to be something better out there. Why haven't we thought of this yet? <laughs> and I remember having conversations with friends and they were like, no, I can think about that when I'm finally smaller. And I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm really tired of trying to get smaller because it's not making me happy and my hair is falling out and I'm having increasingly erratic behavior. And so I just kind of I'm someone who feels like when you put energy out into the world, stuff's going to start getting thrown into your path. And it's up to you whether or not you want to pick it up and look at it. So I picked up Janine Roth's When Food is Love. And we can have an entirely other different conversation about Miss Janine. However, 
reading about other people that had the same behaviors as I did made me feel less broken. And I just, and I remember sitting on a city bus reading that book crying because I didn't realize anybody else did this. And that was huge. And I carried that feeling around with me for about, I mean, it was a long time. I'm talking like 10 years. It sat in there and it kind of grew and I would kind of play around with her guidelines and then come back and go, no, that's not going to work. And But it kind of just led me on this little breadcrumb chase of what else is out there. And so I read her other books and they felt very, there was nothing very concrete in them. I was still just like, I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) And I did stumble upon the intuitive eating book and I read about half of it and then kind of put that one down. And it was this really slow process of just pulling myself out and saying, what else is out there? What else can I find? And I would sit and I would look for, for blogs and I would look for for coaches. And I would, and I just kind of sat and molded myself a new reality until I felt like I could breathe again. And until I really felt like I could stand on my own two feet and ask for more help. And that, that led to Isabel Fox and Duke, who I know, I mean, she's amazing. Yeah. Many, many time podcast guest and friend of the show. (laughs) Right. Like, how can you not love her? I know. And because uh, I remember reading her line that said that you can't fall off the wagon if you never got out on the first place. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so true. Like, I just never want to get on it again. Right. There is no wagon. What if there, there was no, no wagon? wagon? Yeah. What if this is just my life? Like, what if this is just my life and this is just my body? And what if I figure this all out from here? And then, yeah, again, it was just people going, well, have you seen this? And have you seen that? And kind of just gathering up my strength to go, you know what, this is, I'm trashing everything else. Mm, takes a lot. It does take a lot. It takes, it takes a whole lot. And especially being someone in a fat body, it takes a lot to go, you know what, this is my body and letting other people make their own choices about how they react to me, but not internalizing that anymore as if that's somehow my fault. Right. That is a huge step. Yeah. And I'm curious to hear about the process of hitting that diet rock bottom where you were ready, because I think it's a huge thing just to go even to that place of like, yeah, there has to be another way. Let me seek out some alternatives. And then to get from there to like, I accept my body as it is and even maybe love it, right? Living in a fat body, especially like that's a whole other bridge to cross. Oh, it's totally it's a it's a huge bridge. So like I said, I was so I was out on a run. And I just could not stop the thoughts in my head that I needed to stop. Like I needed to literally stop running because it hurt. I needed to stop hustling for my worth. I needed to stop asking people permission to eat because I was in my 30s and I was just really tired of having to email someone and ask permission to eat more food because I was hungry. Like once when I was able to step outside my own life and look at that and see how absurd that was. Right. Did you have like a a dietitian or a program or something? Yeah. I had a coach. And so at this time, I also owned a fitness business. And and there was one time where I was at a training all day and I'd been working out all day and I was exhausted and I was hungry. And I went to the bathroom and I texted her for permission to eat more food. (sighs) And, And I got a text back that said, okay, but make sure it's all protein. Ooh. Right? That's awful. (laughs) That doesn't make your skin crawl. Yeah. Yeah. But I also had to come to the point of realization that I was also doing that to other people. 
in my business. And that was such a gross feeling. It was such a gross feeling to just realize the habits I was setting up in other people. So part of pulling myself out of that was not only recognizing that I wasn't going to do it anymore to me, but that I wasn't going to do it anymore to other people. Mm. I mean, that's so powerful. And I think so many of us in this nutrition, fitness, sort of realm, wellness, quote unquote, are drawn to it because of our own disorder, right? So when we recognize in ourselves that we need to get better, we need help, and we want to stop doing it this way, sometimes that means a big career shift too. It does. And that's scary. Mm-hmm. It's really scary to step out of that and go, I still really want to help people move their bodies because I think there's so much awesome that can come out of it. But I'm going to act completely out of the normative paradigm for this. Right. Which, yeah, that must have been terrifying if you were operating within the normative paradigm and having some success and feeling like, okay, I've got a handle on how to make a living here, you know? Yep. And I thought I was like, I'm going to just play both ends. I'm going to like still help them love their bodies, but also change them at the same time because you can like love yourself into smallness. Right. Well, speaking of Miss Janine, like that's (laughs) sort of her underlying thesis. And it absolutely is. She's a great first step for people. But yeah, she is. She is. And she brings people in and that's awesome. But then we want to take them and go, thanks. Yeah, we'll take it from here. (laughs) Come to our side. We have cupcakes. We're awesome. Yeah, exactly. So you, you were on that fence for a while. I was on that fence for a really long time. I mean, it really took me until just a couple years ago to really go, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done trying to like haul people over the fence with me because I was. I was like, nope, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to work in this because at least I'll be the voice of change until I realized that I was just kind of yelling into a black hole. (laughs) Right. And I could be using my energy to do other things. So I I hopped off the fence and and, um, closed the gate nicely and said, you know, the gate's open. You're welcome to come over with me when you choose to and I'll be here. But I'm going to go over here with these people because they're really awesome and they don't look at me funny when I eat bread. So yeah, I bet that was there's a lot of shaming in the fitness world for your own eating choices too, right? Oh Not my just gosh. how you worked out, but also how you ate or what you talked about. Mm-hmm. Very. You know, we'd go out to dinner and, oh, the rules that people would have to follow and the amount of picture taking of food and the amount of truly disordered things that people will do because they don't trust themselves around a bread basket. Again, when you step outside and you look at it, I remember going to my very first dinner with a group of Hayes dietitians and therapists and watching them eat and being so enamored with people who would use bread to scoop soup out of their bowl and who would share their food around and and discuss the beauty of it and order dessert, (laughs) you know, and like sugar. Sugar, right? And the amount of delicious food noises coming from people as they ate and loved it. And, you know, and and some people would leave food on their plate and some wouldn't. And it just, it blew my mind because I didn't realize how I had never really seen that before in my industry. It doesn't happen. It's salads and it's it's it. Oh, my gosh. Like substitutions. And <laughs> it, yeah, it's so many substitutions and it's pouring water on things and it's and it's putting your napkin over your food and it's over salting your food so you won't eat it. And it, I mean, it's all those disordered behaviors that you get really used to because we're taught to do them. Every magazine article and every it's on the news and it's, you know, it just it's ridiculous. It was ridiculous that I had to sit there and watch normal eaters to go, oh, huh. <laughs> 
Right, because diet culture really normalizes disordered eating. So that's what appears normal. That's what people think of disordered eating as normal eating, and it's not. And you have to really be faced with the picture of what normal eating actually is, what a good relationship with food is to see, oh, this other thing is, is not cool. Yeah. And so much cooler. I mean, we talked about stuff at dinner that wasn't our bodies and we weren't shaming ourselves. I mean, I will never forget that dinner. It was amazing. That sounds incredible. Yeah. And it's what you're saying about talking about things that aren't food in your body. Like that's another piece of this, right? Mm -hmm. It's like how much time and energy and mental space you lose to everything diet culture that it sounds like you were really going through when you were doing personal training because you were working out yourself and then teaching people. So you probably had like hours and hours of your time lost to this. Yep. Oh, so much. And I, what I, I like to think that my classes were this little haven from it. Cause I just, I didn't allow it. Even when I was still working on this stuff, I knew that what I had in front of me, cause I worked with new moms and, and I also had their kids in class and what I had in front of me was precious and that the words coming out of my mouth would become their inner monologue. And it might become these kids inner monologues. So I chose my words carefully and asked them to do the same. And there were times when I would say, I'd go around and I'd say, tell me something you love about your body today. And I don't want it to be your eyes. Tell me something you love about your lower body and it can't be your feet. Like, you know, like I would try to get really specific and they'd kind of look at me. And I loved the moms who were like, oh my gosh, I love my, my legs. They're so strong. So they'd be the ones who like, I really like my butt. Is that okay? Like, because we're not given permission to say that. And so it was, so it was really fun to do that and to really start to shape a relationship with exercise that had absolutely nothing to do with the look of our body. Right. And yeah, like shrinking or manipulating body size was not a part of it at all. Not at all. Yeah. That's huge. And that, it sounds like you were sensitized to that because of your own experience. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Yeah. You really started moving in that direction already. Yep. How did your relationship with fitness evolve? Like how did it from that point when your dad started encouraging you to do more? It sounds like fitness became a part of your disorder. Oh, it absolutely did. And it was very it was very stop and start. It was very it was very prescriptive. Like it had to be cardio or it had to be used in the process of losing weight, like I said. And so I didn't have much of a routine for a really long time because it was like, oh, I'm losing weight for this. So I'm going to work out. I'm losing weight for my wedding. So I'm going to work out. And I really had to, I did a lot of conversations with myself, kind of coaching myself through like, why do I want to do this? When I picked up running, he was a runner. And so I really had to just kind of let all those feelings come up and out. And and I was actually able to use running almost as a catharsis to say, let me heal this relationship I had with you, first of all, dad. And then let me see what I can get out of this for me. And I discovered that I really loved case and case. And so there was a time in my life where that was just my challenge. And it was it was really fun. I loved it. And then it just wasn't anymore. And that was okay too. Like it was okay to let it go. And I really had to, I mean, I went through a period of, of weight gain because we, you do that. Right. And how do I take care of my body while it is regaining weight? And what is my relationship with exercise going to be within this? Cause there was a period of time where I didn't, I, I, I went through a period of time where I had to, it was like cleaning house. I had to get rid of everything 
so that I could figure out what went back in. And I knew I wanted fitness to come back in because I, I do love it. I love, but it, it had to come in on my terms. And so it had to come in without the, it has to be a day. It just, it had to come back in with all the, without all the rules. And it had to come back in, in a way that was safe for now a fat body. Right. And so it became, I had this new eye toward it. And I, and I just realized how much we're not training our fitness people, our fitness leaders, our fitness educators, what have you to work with fat bodies because we're only taught to make them smaller. So we're not taught to use equipment that works for them. We're not taught to, you know, I, I took a class once where the instructor, who I love very much, she's a wonderful person, but she designed an entire class using these fun little scooters, which was awesome. It was a fun class. I don't fit on a scooter. So thankfully, I had the wherewithal to kind of shrug it off. But if I'd been new, oh my gosh, I'd never come back. And she she was caught off guard too. She didn't quite know what to do with me. So it was kind of a lot of, um, you can uh, do squats over there. Which again, I was like, fine, I'll go do my own workout in the corner because I'm a fitness instructor so I can do this. But but it really made me think like, we got to do better. Yeah, the modification shouldn't just be an afterthought. And like, no. you know, you see someone struggling and it's like, oh, oh God, okay, make something up, right? It's, it should be baked into the, the queuing. It should be. But we lump fat bodies in this group of like, you're lazy, you're gross, this is probably your first time, do you even know how to do this? And so... We worry that we're going to hurt them. And so it gets very, it gets very ableist. It gets very fat phobic. And because, you know, all different bodies can do different things. I mean, I would have people in smaller bodies come and they're like, I I can't do a jumping jack. But my bias was like, but of course you do. You're in a small body. Why wouldn't you know how to do it? So, you know, so I really had to, I mean, anybody could get hurt in a class. So these universal thoughts that we have, they just get in the way. Right. And that's a good point, too, that ableism kind of cuts across size lines as well. It's like it does. assuming that people in smaller bodies can do something is actually just as ableist as assuming people in larger bodies can't. Right. And there's definite things I can't do. There are things that my body will not let me do because, you know, breasts get in the way or tummies get in the way or thighs get in the way. And people are going to come with different abilities and that you can or can't see. But none of them are sentences to, well, I just can't help you. So I really had to kind of turn my education toward who do I want to be able to help and how do I want to be able to help them? And, and I had to turn an eye to my own classes too. Mm-hmm. How did you shift things from there? I stopped thinking that my classes needed to be big and flashy and hard. There was kind of this trend going of like, how complicated can I get my classes to be? And how hard can I push people? And how proud can I be when someone like can't get up after class? And I, you know, and I, and I had to kind of pull back and go, you know what? I, I don't need that in my classes. I need them to be effective for what people want to be able to do. And so when I started asking people, you know, they'd come to class and, and what do you, I'd ask them, what do you want to be able to do? And how do you want your body to be able to feel? And what do you love doing? Because I think people come with this prescription of, well, exercise has to be walking or running or squats or lifting weights. But if you love roller skating, you know, and you remembered roller skating as a kid and you really want to build a roller skate again, I'm going to approach fitness with you very differently than someone who, who really wants to be able to hike better. You know, I've got a client right now who wants to, she loves to hike and she wants to do hikes in 2018. And so we kind of like hashed out, well, then we need to work on your stamina and maybe we need to work on you being able to climb more hills. And that's a very different way to approach, but they get the freedom to be able to decide that. 
Totally. Yeah. So giving people the sense of what is this for? What is this right. working towards rather than just seeing the class as an end and into itself? Right, right. And starting to recognize how is this helping me outside? You know, I, I would have clients come to me and they'd go, you know, I I was walking downtown Seattle the other day and I it wasn't until I got to the top of my hill, because we've got a few of those around here, that I realized I wasn't winded. That's huge. It's huge. Or I was able to take the, I had to take the stairs at work because I needed to get upstairs fast and the elevator was jammed up and I, and I did flights of stairs and I, and I've never done that before. Or I walked around Disneyland with my kids for miles and it was cool and I'm not in pain. Like we don't realize that it has so many other effects and that fitness really, you know, if you've got some things you need to take care of health wise, it can help. But again, figure out how you want it to be able to help. Right. If you want it to. Because again, none of this is a moral imperative. Right. I think that's a huge piece too of like coming to the realization that it's not a moral imperative and not at all. working in the industry, working in the wellness industry and saying that is a pretty radical shift, right? It is. Like I would love to work myself out of a job. Yeah. Teaching people that this is this is all up to them and it's all okay. And right. teaching people to relate to their bodies in a in a better way. Right. So that you don't have to be there <laughs> helping them. Right. So I don't have to like change their minds and make this to Yeah. Right. Well, and like you said, you know, about your own epiphany that you're in your thirties and texting someone for permission to eat. It's like really nice for, for people, you know, for us to be able to give people the permission that they can choose themselves and they can trust their own bodies and their own choices. And that I'm not the food police Mm -hmm. and I don't really care what you had for dinner last night. Like, unless it was really good and I want the recipe. Right. Totally. (laughs) Like I just, it's not, it's not my job. I'm not a dietitian. I don't, I'm not going to tell you what to eat. I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not going to shame you for that. Like come in and tell me you had whatever for breakfast. Great. But I'm not going to be like, well, uh, one of my least favorite phrases, how's that working for you? Oh God. Like, can we add more shame to that, please? Seriously. I don't need shame in my, I, there's just, there's no room for shame in my life anymore. Don't bring it in. Is that something people expect of you to shame them about their food, like as a trainer? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we're, I think everyone expects everyone to shame them about their food. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, when do we ever talk about food where it's not shame based? I'm at a birthday party yesterday and someone's going, oh, I was going to I was going to come here and be so good and only eat veggies. But oh, but that chips and salsa is just so good. But the the, the salsa is healthy because it has vegetables in it. But I oh. really shouldn't be eating it with the chips. And, I mean, this is what passes as acceptable, nice to meet you conversation. Right? Yes. You know, I mean, it is like literally, hi, my name's so-and-so, I'm not supposed to eat that. And let's bond over what we're not supposed to eat. Exactly. Let's bond over over our hatred of ourselves and our bodies and food. Oh, I know. It's rampant. It's so rampant and it's so accepted. And when I look at people like, this is really good, it's tasty. Did it taste good? When I ask people if their food tasted good and they just kind of blink at me, as though yeah that's not like a normal question right or like it's bad if it did Mm -hmm. like how dare you enjoy that food right well yeah because pleasure is so demonized in our culture too so demonized 
I know. That's so interesting. I mean, that bonding ritual of uh-huh. bonding over food shame is something I definitely experienced myself and had this very strange experience of like having gone through until I was 20, not experiencing that, not partaking in that, actually being the sort of the funny clown at parties where people would be like shaming about particular types of food. Or I had a best friend in like elementary through high school whose mom was always on a diet. And when I would go over there and be like, ooh, can I have some of this frosting, she'd be like, oh, please, you know, be my human garbage disposal because I can't have that in the house. You know, it's too fattening. So I'd eat like tubes and jars of frosting straight out of the thing. And, you know, people would laugh at me, but I'd be like, this is delicious and get away, you know, quote unquote, get away with it without being shamed for it because of my size, you know? Right. It was totally acceptable for you. Yeah. It was like this. I was sort of this funny like unicorn or something, you know, in people's minds. And then when I developed my eating disorder and started partaking in diet culture, I was like, oh, my God, this is what I've been missing, like this way of bonding with people. It felt so like because I had always, you know, sort of been not been necessarily, but felt like an outsider. You know, I did have a period in my elementary school days where we moved to a new school and I was an outsider for a while. And that really kind of stuck with me. And I had always felt a little bit awkward getting to know people at first and figuring out what to connect over. Yeah. And small talk is just not my strong suit. And then (laughs) suddenly the diet culture thing, it was like, it felt like a, a way into a deeper conversation. You know, I've said that on the podcast before. It was like this bridge from small talk to like intimacy that I never really knew I needed. But then suddenly I was like, oh, it's here and this is wonderful. And then having to lose that again when I recovered from an eating disorder and stepped out of diet culture was a real loss too. It's such a loss. It is a real loss to tell people, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. And it's awkward to sit at dinners with friends completely silent because All they're talking about is what they can't eat or what they won't eat or what they feel bad about eating or to describe food as, well, this isn't insert diet here approved, you know, (laughs) Right. and I'm just sitting there like, um, I, I'll just take my dinner please Mm -hmm. and I'll eat it. And let's talk about something else. Like anything, anything else. Do you know how much there is going on in our world that we need to be talking about right now, but we're not because we're afraid of food. Right. I mean, that's the crux of all this, right? It's like it's taking us away from these big, important social issues and just from our lives. It's keeping us small. It's keeping us small. It's keeping us small and it's keeping us quiet. Mm -hmm. And fixated and ruminating on something that doesn't actually matter. Yep. Oh, my gosh. What could we have done? What could this world be like if we weren't convinced that we weren't good enough? I know. And I mean, I'm always talking about the life thief. You know, that's my metaphor for diet culture that steals your life in all these various ways. And I feel like that's everyone I talk to has a story, right, of the life thief. It's like it's stolen your time. It's stolen your ability to really connect with people on the things that matter. It's stolen your money. Like you mentioned, you spent so much money on this stuff, right? I took out loans. I took out loans. Oh my God. To pay for those like great big diet centers. Wow. Because they're so expensive. Right. And you have to sign on, right? At this. Oh, yeah. Like high level to even get access to the material. Yeah. One of them, I came back from my honeymoon Mm. having gained weight. And she's like, oh, you know, um, and she literally wrote out how much more money I was going to have to pay them for the <gasps> weight I gained on my honeymoon, eating like French wine and cheese. Oh and God. I came back like so happy. And she's like, yeah, it's going to cost you this much to lose all that weight. And I'm like, um, no, Whoa. that really puts it in stark terms, right? Doesn't it? But yeah, she was she was ticked. <laughs> 
<laughs> because of your honeymoon. Because oh my, my god! Honeymoon weight. Yeah, that is ridiculous. Yeah, she didn't ask me what it was like to climb the Eiffel Tower. She wanted to know why I'd gained weight on my honeymoon. Jeez, that just another way of sort of putting it into stark relief, right? Like your honeymoon, this beautiful experience, and the only thing she wants to talk about is your weight. Yep. Well, and how many holidays have we all lost out on because? We couldn't enjoy the entire experience because we're told, nope, it's about the people. It's not about the food. And I'm like, but it's kind of about both. Right. Yeah. And it can be. And that's okay because it's wonderful. Totally. And then shaming yourself when you do enjoy the food or, you know, partake in the food. And it's like, oh, God, I shouldn't have done that, which actually takes you away from the people, too. So it's like (laughs) taking away from the whole experience. It like puts you in a corner. It just. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <sighs> yeah. So that, you know, it sounds like you lost a lot of your life to that too. Oh, I, I lost like all of my teens and twenties, which is making me enjoy my thirties more. Right. Same. Yeah. I lost all my twenties too. Yeah. I'll turn that around. My forties are going to be awesome. I'll be 40 this year. It's going to be great. Yeah. Life is long, you know, knock on wood. We have time to yeah. turn these things around. Yeah. And it's, and it's exciting to, I have found that it's been really exciting to just figure out who I am and, And to really just take on this world in this body again, like I'm going to have purple hair and I'm going to have pink hair and I'm going to be really loudly unapologetic about my body. And I'm going to fight for the people who are bigger than me because again, like it's, we always have to be, we always have to be, if I get too centered on, well, this is, this is mine and I'm as big as it gets. And, but I can't like, there's always someone out there who needs, who needs our voices and right. Yeah, we need to be centering the people in the most marginalized bodies in this movement. Yep, always. How did that unfold for you? Like, how did you get to the place of unapologetic body acceptance for yourself? And then also this social justice component, you know, the social justice lens on things. Well, I'm going to, I have to throw out a shout out to to the Be Nourished Warriors. Dana and Hillary are, they're amazing. If people haven't found them, you run. Oh, they're incredible. They've been on the podcast before. We'll link to their episodes in the show notes too. They're incredible. Oh yeah. They're amazing. And honestly, that's where I found all this. And I I started going to their trainings and reading their blog. And I remember the first time I met them and I was just in like starry-eyed awe. I met them at a conference and I was like, oh my word. And then I went and saw them in another training and I sat in the front row center just so I could stare at them. <laughs> They do have that effect on people, I feel like. They do. Star power. They inspire so much love. And I was literally the first person to sign up for their body trust certification. I found Ah. that out. Like my application (laughs) was the first one in. (laughs) Because I was just that excited and and then went to their to that. And that's and that's really when when all of that started for me. Any kind of social justice lens on any of this. And it all made so much sense. It just, it just clicked in and I was like, this is it. This is, this is how I'm spending the rest of my life. Oh, that's amazing. And everything else needed to change everything. It needed to go in the trash. Right. Yeah. How did that affect your, your career then? That's when I decided to quit. And I legit, I went home and I called my boss and I, cause I wasn't, I didn't have my business anymore. So I wasn't teaching classes, but I was still working for the company. And I called my boss and I said, I can't do this anymore because I realized I was censoring myself. And on one thing I was saying one thing, but I was also like acting in fear of my boss reading something and not agreeing with it. And I said, I'm censoring myself. And thankfully the, the, my direct supervisor said, then it's time to go because she recognized in me that that wasn't cool. And so we parted on amazing terms and it's, and I still, I, I I love the people there. You can't not, we're all just struggling through this and we're all struggling through it where we are. And that's, that's what we have to recognize. But 
But that was my turning point of, nope, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm going to run everything. Everything in my life goes through this filter of, of fat activism and fat liberation and haze and body trust and everything, all of it. What was that like to make that choice? It was so exciting. It was so exciting. It really felt like this is where I've been trying to get to for 20 years. This is what every single, every single thing that got put in front of me that I chose to pick up and look at, even if I didn't hold it for very long, this is where it was trying to get me. And it's what propelled me to go back to school to get my master's in in clinical mental health counseling. And it's where I will eventually take that. And I love the, the rooted feeling I have in it. I love the people it's brought me. I mean, it's put, it's put the most amazing people I've ever met just right into my life. And, and I don't know how I survived so long without them. Yeah. It's incredible what this movement can bring the kinds of connections. Yeah. I feel that too. I I feel like the work that I'm doing now is the culmination of so much, so much striving and grappling with all of this stuff and trying to find something that would make me feel okay. Yep. And it was finding intuitive eating was kind of the first step for me. And I was researching a book on emotional eating that I never ended up writing. But the yeah. the book proposal, you know, I sort of spun off into the idea for this podcast, basically. And that's why I started the podcast. But I was in that research for the book. I found intuitive eating. I found like Janine Roth and a bunch of studies mm-hmm. on, you know, the effects of deprivation and stuff like that. And it, that was the first step towards like, OK, maybe we don't have to live like this, you know, and then it all just kept unfolding. And I feel like when I first was my first foray professionally into this world was working with eating disorders and the eating disorder recovery community, I feel like has a Venn diagram with the haze and body trust community where it's like there's some (laughs) overlap, right? right? But it's maybe pretty small. And like there's a whole subset of the eating disorder recovery community that doesn't really understand or get like a lot of the concepts around social justice and body acceptance and fat acceptance and fat liberation and all that. So like finding my way into that space was really the final, I mean, obviously not the final because we all keep evolving and it's a journey, right? But like it felt like, okay, this is really, I felt that same like rootedness and that same sense of like, okay, I found my people. I found where I'm supposed to be. I'll talk with people that are in my cohort when I've talked with Dana and Hillary about this too. And because we bonded really fast and we're kind of a formidable force. It's pretty amazing. And I, and what it came down to was we were thirsty for each other. We were so, it was like coming inside after being in a desert for a really long time. And all of a sudden there's just all of this water and we just, we couldn't get enough. It was amazing. And I, you know, and I felt, I felt that at Beta this year when I got to go and there are all these people there and I just didn't want to leave because these were my people. <laughs> right. And the feeling of, the feeling of being seen and of not feeling like you have to compensate for anything or apologize for anything and just, just go and just be, it's, it's a gift. It really is. Yeah, I want that for everyone. I do too. Because I think as providers and clinicians and stuff, we can be given access to that space in a way that everyday folks don't necessarily have, you know, yeah. the access to that. And I think one way for people to find that community might be to go, I know so many people who made a career change after discovering this stuff, decided, hey, my existing career really isn't conducive to self-care. It's not nourishing me in this way. And this body trust stuff, this, you know, fat liberation 
and stuff, whatever is like really lighting me up. And that's where I want to be spending my time. Yep. And so, you know, that's one path, I think, towards finding that community. But I think there's there's other ways too. you know, if people are already in a career that is lighting them up or they don't want to change and, you know, need that access to that space in person in their lives, that has to be available too. It does. Because you can live this anywhere. I mean, when I meet people now, and especially when I meet fat people, I'm like, I can tell when I'm meeting someone who gets it. And you can just break those walls down immediately. And you can just be you. And it's awesome. Yeah, it is that kind of like that bridge between small talk and intimacy, but a real one. A real one. Yeah. And I want that for everyone. I want everyone to be able to be seen. And I want to be able to provide that both in the little bit of fitness I still do, but then as a counselor. And, and I love that I can send people to you know, refer them to RDs and other therapists and what have you and go, this person's going to see you and they're going to love you and they're not going to harm you. Right. Being able to trust people like that is so important. Yep. So in terms of your career change, I'm curious to hear what you want to do with the the therapist degree and sort of where you're hoping to go with that. I really want to approach therapy from a body trust standpoint and I chose therapy because I want to work clinically. I want I want to get my hands dirty with binging disorder. I want to be kind of boots on the ground with helping really change that movement because it is so new. And I mean, quote unquote new as far as the treatment goes. And and I want to be able to help shape that because I want, <laughs> I kind of have always in anything I've done, I just, I look for me out there. Do you know what I mean? Like I just, I want to find people who are living in fat bodies and maybe they have any disorder. Maybe they don't. I don't, we all don't. And I don't want to sit here and, you know, and, and pathologize that at all, but I just, I want to use it in the realm of fat advocacy and fat liberation, but I also want to help turn around. I'm, I'm discovering in my own schooling that obviously we all have biases, but there's still a pretty, whether you work in eating disorders or not, we all need to address our own fat phobia and not only, you know, our own internal fat phobia, but we're all going to be sitting in the room with, with fat clients, whether you're in a fat body or not. And those bodies are in the room. And I don't care how you're working with a client for whatever diagnosis that needs to be addressed. And we're taught to address race and we're taught to address sexuality. And we're like, there are just so many things that we talk about so that we can address those biases. We're not ever taught to address our fat phobic biases. No. And that needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in my counseling textbooks, that bias is so clear. I threw a textbook across the room last week. I'm not going to lie. Because it was like, this author's bias against fat people was so strong. And it bugs me to think that anyone might read that and go, oh, yeah, that's true. Mm, right. Which I know a lot of therapists do. Right. I mean, I know of therapists that step over lines and and prescribe weight loss and they their own wellness kick and that, you know, and if, so if you're if you're operating completely outside of a of any kind of body trust or even disordered eating lens, the opportunity to harm people is real. And so I really trying not to be quiet with my thoughts around this stuff. They haven't kicked me out yet. So yeah, that's important. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah. Because it's not it's not talked about enough. And definitely so many therapists are doing harm unintentionally, you know, with the best of wanting to help people, but being in this lens of diet culture. But when you're stuck in your own, you don't get it, then you're not helping anybody else. Exactly. 
Yeah. And you're going to start going, well, if you maybe this can be helped if you lost weight or maybe this and and it just here's how to do it. Blah, blah, blah. Exactly. It's just going to get wrapped up in everything else. Yeah, I know. It's it's really unfortunate how much of that pathology, you know, that disordered eating mindset just kind of runs through our culture. Yeah. And again, you know, like we were talking about earlier with disordered eating being so normalized, I think it's normalized within the mental health community as well, where I had the experience of seeking therapy for my eating disorder early, very early in the eating disorder, like at, you know, age 21 or whatever. Yeah. And was like, okay, something ain't right here. Like I need help. And talking to a couple different therapists about it and getting the message from one that like, oh, well, you're not thin enough. So you can't possibly have an eating disorder. Right. And then from another one being like, well, everybody has some issues with food. You know, maybe you're being too hard on yourself. In both cases, I think they didn't see themselves as doing harm or they were trying to do what they thought was best for the case for me, right, for helping me. But like it just had this unintended consequence of like pushing my desire for help further underground, basically, and resulted in several more years of me fumbling around with this stuff because I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm not thin enough, so maybe I should go try to lose more weight. And like, also, maybe this isn't so bad and I'm just making a mountain out of a molehill or like, I'm totally, I'm so nuts that they've never seen anything this bad and they don't know what to do with me, right? These are all thoughts that I had. Yeah. Well, and it's such a myth that you're not, you don't have an eating disorder unless you're you know, so I, it took me a long, long time to come around to the fact that I had one because I was like, well, what do you, what do you mean? I have an eating disorder. <laughs> I remember my therapist again, giving her this intake and she goes, okay, so that was your anorexic period. And I was like, I'm sorry, what now? Because it just hadn't occurred to me that, that that's what I was doing. And it was like, it was clearly was, but I wasn't tiny. So how could I have an eating disorder? So no one would have seen it. There was no chance for anyone to have caught this behavior in me until I caught it in myself. And that's, that's kind of scary, but I'm, but that's really scary. You know, so we have to be on the lookout for it. And I think I probably go overboard because this is now my cause. And so I see it everywhere, but I think it kind of is everywhere though, too. It, oh, it totally is. It's hard not to see it, you know, in this culture. It is. And I think, I mean, that's part of what I'm hoping with this podcast to do is like give people the recognition. And I do hear from people all the time being like, I never knew I had an issue with food until I started listening to this podcast. And now I'm recognizing myself in all of these behaviors because the behaviors aren't really talked about. Like in articles about eating disorders, it's always like she weighed only X pounds and ate only X calories a day. And it's like putting the focus on these extreme behaviors and these behaviors related to numbers and weight that have nothing to do with like how the vast majority of eating disorders look in a day-to-day way. And they look so they look so different in, in, in everybody. I mean, I think we can all kind of find ways that that we overlap, but mine's going to look different from yours, which is going to look different from somebody else's. And because that's just how it manifests in all of us. But ultimately, we all get to heal that relationship if we choose to. Mm-hmm. And we deserve to. We absolutely, we, we deserve to like eat cupcakes and, and eat beautiful salads and they shouldn't have different moral weights. Yeah, absolutely. Food doesn't have a moral value. No. There's nothing better about a salad than about a cupcake and each is really important for its own purpose. Yeah. And if I want to eat it emotionally, (laughs) because I don't know how to not eat emotionally, Because I'm a human being with emotions. Right. 
And when you're deprived of food and restricted of food, that can make you extra emotional about food. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And about everything, like about, you know, brings up a lot of, yeah, anxiety, depression, all of that stuff. Oh, so much anxiety. (laughs) But when you, I mean, it's a trauma to be restricted of food. So when you've gone through a trauma like that, having the threat of restriction looming over you again is going to feel very emotional, very scary. Yep. And especially to be the one doing it to yourself. I mean, that's a, to have to heal that relationship with yourself. It's a lot and it's so worth it. It's just, it's, it's a very worthwhile, if not messy pool to jump into. Right. Yeah, it definitely can be messy. Yeah. But what lies on the other side is so much more valuable. It's so awesome. It's so sunny over here. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, what would you say to someone who's in the midst of it and is trying to get through? Because it can definitely feel kind of dark and, and messy, like you said. It's a slog. It's a slog. I mean, I typically tell people just the, to forgive themselves and just to keep going and that it's not always, I mean, sometimes you're just hanging out and sometimes you have to, sometimes you just have to give yourself a break and say, I'm just going to tread water here for a while and I'm going to get comfortable here until I'm ready to move out of that comfort zone and keep going. It takes a long time and it, it takes a long time to realize what comes in between that kind of body loathing and that kind of body liberation. And it's not all sunshine and roses and we still have bad body days. And it's not like all of a sudden I look in the mirror and go, oh yeah, everything on this is perfect. We all still have those days where something hurts or clothes don't fit. It happens, but it's just a matter of going, yep, that's it. And going on with your day instead of going, oh, well, Monday I need to go back to this and I need to There's not a plan needed, except maybe go get new clothes that fit. Right. Yeah. Take care of yourself in ways that help you feel better. Yeah. Like maybe I need a nap. Maybe I need a walk. Maybe I need to call a friend. Maybe I need to throw a book across the room. Mm -hmm. That's a valid response. (laughs) You know? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Give yourself the opportunity. Give yourself that flexibility and give yourself that breathing room and give yourself that compassion and reach out for help. Please, you know, ask ask for help. Ask when you don't understand something. This is not an easy, I swear we have our own language. You know, we do. We have our own language and we, in this world, and it can get dicey and it can get scary and tempers flare. So just find your people and find your allies and and figure out where you want to plant your feet. And, but yeah, you, you have to, you have to have patience and compassion for yourself as you go through it. Right. Totally. That's an important message. And be willing to put the same effort that you put into dieting, put that into getting out of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, so important. <laughs> you know, I mean, if I, if I could put that much time and energy towards trying to make myself smaller, I can certainly put that much time and energy into making myself a presence in this world and doing something for someone else. Totally. Yeah. I think that's really well said. You obviously have that kind of energy and time and ability to devote to a certain cause exemplified by how hard you tried in diet culture. And that's true for all of us, right? For everyone, because diets don't work and don't lead to lasting results, except in a very tiny percentage of the population, which is basically suffering from an eating disorder or severely disordered eating. For everyone, that's time and energy and money wasted and spent on the control or effort at controlling food and body instead of on millions of other things. So exactly, you've proven to yourself. I sometimes have clients say, especially clients in larger bodies, say that they had always had this vision of themselves as lacking willpower, lacking drive, you know, because of the the social stigma and the stereotypes that are conveyed about 
people in larger bodies, but like if you can recognize that, okay, actually there are lots of aspects of my life in which I do have great drive and great ability to get mm-hmm. things done and stick to And one of those is this effort at dieting. Just because it hasn't quote unquote worked or you haven't quote unquote succeeded in the long term doesn't mean you don't have the ability and drive to put into something because diets are actually just a losing proposition and you're always, you're set up not to succeed. Oh, absolutely. It's like being on a hamster wheel. Yeah. Totally. You're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. Yeah. But you're definitely expending a lot of energy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Trying to get nowhere. Yep. So let's put that somewhere else. And, you know, I mean, I've got three kids. This is, I want a lot for them. And what I don't want for them is any of this junk. Yeah. How has that changed how you parent? I mean, did you have your kids before you made this transition professionally and personally? I did not. I didn't, I didn't really make, make this transition until, until I was pregnant with my third one. So, so my feelings toward feeding my kids and and talking to my kids about all this stuff has changed dramatically. And I'm really glad it did. I'm really glad it did before, especially my oldest started going through puberty and before I'm, Oh, I'm hoping fingers crossed before they really started to notice a whole lot because I know my kids have said cringeworthy things when I was back in the day. I had a friend once tell me that they were spending the night at her house and one of my daughters said they weren't allowed to eat cereal because there was a time when that was my message. So it's changed a bit. (laughs) Changed a bit. But you know, my kids can like dissect diet commercials now and they can recognize that harmful messaging and they can my four-year-old loves to to tell me when he's full, you know? And he knows that and he'll go, Mommy, are you full? And I'll say, Yeah, I'm full. And he said, Okay, it's time to be done eating now. You know, like they recognize when they're hungry and they recognize when they when they're full and they recognize that their their bodies know what to tell them and that our bodies are different. And it is really important to me that my kids know they have a fat mommy. So we don't shy away from that word in our house. We don't shy away from from seeing differences in bodies because I don't want them to be shielded from that. And they really need to know that their mommy is awesome and does a lot of things. And she does all those things in a fat body because when they see other people in fat bodies, I want them to go think about me. I want to think, oh my gosh, my mom had a fat body and she was just so awesome. And I mean, I don't know why I'm taking myself out of this picture, <laughs> but I don't know why I'm using past tense, but I just, I want that feeling to come up. And I don't want them thinking, oh, my mom was always trying to change her body and she was never happy in her body and she didn't think she was beautiful. And so I'm really purposeful in using those words around my kids to describe myself. Mm, I love that because that really helps undermine that pervasive cultural messaging about fat, right? About fat bodies. Because they're going to get it. They're going to get it strong. And if I can buffer any of that here, then I'm going to. Yeah. And it sounds like you're also having dialogues with them about what they see about diet culture and how it shows up in commercials and stuff like that. Oh, commercials and kids shows and it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. And so we talk about it and it's, and it's a lot of like, this is not the be all end all. And this is, we talk about the portrayals of fat characters on their shows and what are they trying to make us think about this character? And is that true? And they roll their eyes at me a lot (laughs) because We talk about it a lot. Mom, I know. Mom, I know. (laughs) But I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. I think that's so important just to keep at it because the messages are so strong and pervasive that, you know, it's important to have the alternative available all the time, too. Yep. I want it to pop out of their mouth someday. I want them to go, oh, my gosh, it's not like my mom when I said that. Yes. (laughs) That's the goal, right? Like in that in that sense, when you're teaching them something this important, that's so that would be lovely. It is. 
Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for, for sharing everything that you shared. This is an amazing conversation. Oh, this has been fun. Yeah. Tell <laughs> us where people can find you and learn more about your work. I'm online at christyfacio.com. Still working on my website, but it's up there. It's up there. Yeah. And I'm on Facebook at Fit From Within LLC. That's my, there's a few of them out there, but. <laughs> that's yours. We'll link to that in the show notes too. So people can find the right one. Yeah. That's where I am. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's really a pleasure talking with you. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Christy Fascio for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet path, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. It's like a bonus podcast episode with some really practical guidance. And you can get it at christyharrison.com strategies. That's christyharrison.com strategies. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. We're now even on Spotify, which is really exciting because that's where I listen to all my music. And so I'm pretty psyched to have my podcast on there too. So listen to us on there. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts. Get your friends and family to subscribe on whatever their favorite podcasting platform is. That really helps get the word out. And it also helps bring us up in the rankings so that more people discover us just through the podcast charts. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 146. That's christyharrison.com slash 146. And very exciting news, we now have transcripts available for all the episodes. So if you want to review the content that you listen to here and take some notes, or if you know someone with auditory processing issues or hearing issues, now they can enjoy the podcast as well in a transcript form. So when you go to christyharrison.com slash 146, that's show notes page, at the bottom of the page, you'll see a little box that says get the transcript for this episode. Just enter your email address in there and you'll get the transcript delivered to you automatically. And we're adding back episodes as well. So soon our whole back episode library of podcasts will have transcripts available and then we'll be doing them going forward as well. So that is very exciting and it's made possible by our new transcript assistant, Megan Sishi. Food Psych is edited and engineered by Podcast Fast Track. Our community manager and content development associate is Ashley Saruya and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched.